you'd like to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that's what we're going to be taking a look at this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 13. That's on page 957 of the ESV Pew Bibles, part of our ongoing series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're well over halfway at this point. And it's been called a roadmap for raw Christians because a lot of these Christians in the church of Corinth at the time of this writing were raw. They were brand new. They were first generation Christians and Paul's giving them a a roadmap on how to get from where they are to mature believers in Christ. So it's, it's filled with a lot of practical teaching and teaching that we can still benefit from today. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask, first of all, that we would understand it. We, we want to know the true meaning of this passage. We don't want to leave confused. We don't want to leave with, with some nagging questions about what this means. And Father, we also seek to apply this to our lives. Help us to listen with hearts of faith, with a willingness to be corrected and and taught and instructed by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The average time it takes to send or read a text while you're driving is about five seconds. And they've done some studies and they've determined that during that transition time from doing whatever you're doing on your phone, looking at it, and then looking up to go back to driving, that, that, that transition, that moment, in, in that moment, someone's reaction time and, and response time is somewhat delayed. It, it's not as sharp as it was if they had stayed focused on the road. So it, it really shouldn't surprise us that over 25% of motor vehicle accidents are from drivers looking at their phone. And this is a relatively new thing, obviously. But really what it comes down to is not paying attention. Not paying attention. From 2013 to 2017, pedestrian fatalities increased by 25%. So not not the people in the vehicles, the people walking across the street increased by 25%. I wonder what that's from. Number one reason they increased, looking at their phone while crossing the street. Not paying attention. So not paying attention when driving, not paying attention when walking, people are dying because they're not paying attention. And they're not paying attention to some teaching and instruction that they receive very early. What's one of the first things, parents, that you teach your children as they go out of the house and they begin to explore the world around them? Look both ways before you cross the street. That that is parenting 101. We've all heard it. If you have children, you've all said it. Look both ways before crossing the street. And people are are, are dying also because they're they're driving and they're not paying attention and they're they're neglecting some early teaching. What what happens when someone is, is behind the wheel for the first time? They're they're behind the wheel and they're so excited and then they look down at the speedometer to see how fast they're going and looking up something on the gauge and what does the parent or the instructor tell them? 
Keep your eyes on the road. Again, very basic teaching that we all hear. They're neglecting this basic teaching and they're not paying attention. In Corinth, Paul was warning raw believers and he was warning them that they're going to die because they were neglecting some basic teaching that they received when they first came to Christ. And here it is. He's saying, those who walk in ongoing, unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. That, that's Christianity 101. But here's what he adds to it in our passage. Even if you believe the right things, and even if you're doing the right things, that teaching still applies. And he's going to draw in some examples from the old covenant people of God. He's going to point out how it applies to the new covenant people of God, the church. But, but that's, that's his message. It's a powerful warning to the church. Pay attention, or as it's translated, take heed. That's the message. I want us to, to read through this and, and listen for that, that powerful warning. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate of the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Paul begins this, this section with four, which means he's about to back up his point that he made at the end of chapter nine. You remember at the end of chapter nine, Paul was saying, if you don't run the race, in other words, if you don't live the Christian life with discipline, with intentionality, with self-control, then you're going to be, he said, disqualified. You're, you're not going to make it. And so with the four, he's saying, all right, here, let me show you how this could happen by first showing you how it happened in, in the Old Covenant. So he's saying, let's look at Scripture together. Let's look at our common history and I'll show you what I mean. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. So in a way, he's saying, look, I, I, I understand you're probably familiar with some of these wilderness wanderings account of Israel, but I'm not sure that you fully grasped the implications of the things that happened to those, to those people of God. So he's going to point it out. 
He says that our fathers, so the church in Corinth was a mixture of Jew and Gentile Christians, but it was primarily Gentile. And so it isn't, it, I think, interesting that Paul and, and ultimately God are reckoning the people, the Gentile believers at Corinth, as descendants of the people that were wandering around in the wilderness. Spiritual descendants, sons and daughters of the old covenant people of God. This is why Paul can write in Galatians, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offering. So, uh, excuse me, offspring. The, the generation of, of people that walk through the Red Sea are not only considered the, the fathers of ethnic Israel, but they are rightly considered the fathers of everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is an important biblical doctrine. Ephesians 2, 13 through 15, and speaking to the Gentiles says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself, meaning Jesus, has made us both one, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And this is why, once again, Paul can say in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now keep in mind, this is Paul, a Jew by birth. And he's saying, Jew, Gentile, makes no spiritual difference whatsoever. None at all. What matters is faith in Christ. It doesn't matter who your biological parents were. That's not important. So our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the cloud, remember, was a visible manifestation of the presence of God with his people as they moved through the wilderness. When the cloud stopped, they encamped. When the cloud moved out, they picked up camp and moved out with it. Passing through the seas, talking about God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, if you recall. They're, they're trapped between Pharaoh's army and the sea, and God provides a way. Overnight, he parts the sea with a strong wind. They pass through on dry ground. And then when Pharaoh's army tries to pursue, the waters return to their normal course, and they are destroyed. It was a mighty display of God's power to save. So between the two of those, we have an example of God's power and God's presence. And he said the people were baptized into Moses through these events. So he's, he's connecting the old covenant people of God and, and the new covenant people of God, the believers in Corinth specifically. And he's saying, look, you're, you've both undergone a baptism. You're, you're both in the same place there. And then in verse 3 and 4, and they all ate the same spiritual food. You remember the people of God as they wandered in the wilderness were given manna to eat. This, this bread that was made uh, available by God and it, it fell on the grass like dew in the morning. And they, they picked it up. There was enough provision for every day, twice as much on the day before the Sabbath. If they tried to store it, it went bad. But it was God's provision for them and for their daily sustenance. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. In Exodus 17, God commanded Moses to strike the rock at Horeb. He did. Water came forth out of it. And what Paul's saying is, all of the water that they were sustained with, that was from Christ. That, that, that was from God. That was from, from Jesus Christ. Their, their sustenance, their, their sustaining water in, in the desert was from our Lord. So not only does this provide a, a strong example of the second person of the Trinity's pre-incarnate presence with his people, but he, he's strengthening that link between Old Covenant people of God and New Covenant people of God. He's saying there really isn't all that much difference here. 
And I want you believers in Corinth to see that. They've all been baptized. They've all experienced the privilege of taking spiritual food and drink from Christ. So he's laid out this comparison. And then in verse 5, he says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So here's his point from this, from this first section, making the comparison. It's entirely possible to start off well, but not finish well. It's entirely possible to be among the covenant people of God, but not end well. Overthrown can also be translated as to spread out or to scatter about. And that's exactly what happened over the course of the next generation. In the next 40 years, they were, they were scattered about the wilderness. They, they, they died off one by one. Only Joshua and Caleb made it in. So then in verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And he's going to say, look, I don't want you to make the same mistake. So he's going to line up. Again, Old Covenant Israel and, and New Covenant Church is going to show the, the people of God in these different periods of redemptive history. And what he's going to do is he's going to draw out four specific examples of, of the people in the wilderness. And he's going to show that these are the same sins that they're committing in Corinth. So as he goes through these, they're going to look strangely familiar these, these are not random examples pulled out of Old Covenant history. These are purposeful. So let's take a look at them. The four are idolatry, sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, and grumbling. Number one, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Paul's thinking about the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. And the reason we know that is because he quotes directly from Exodus 32.6, which says... And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, if we were going to write to Corinth and we wanted to make a point that at the golden calf incident, the people of God were participating in idolatry. And we were given the choice and we, and, and we were said, the choice was, look, do you want to use the first half of that verse or the second half of that verse? to make your point that the people are engaging in idolatry. I'd probably pick the first half. That, that seems like it more clearly gives an example of idolatry. You're, you're bringing offerings before an idol. That, that's very clearly idolatry. But Paul uses the second half of the verse. Now, why do you think he does that? Well, what were the Corinthians doing? They were participating in cultic meals at pagan idol temples, and they were eating and sitting down to drink, and they were participating in the sexual immorality that came up afterwards. And that's what rose up to play means. Sexual immorality. Strangely familiar. He's saying, you're doing exactly what the idolatrous people of God did when they committed idolatry with the golden calf. And as a result, 3,000 were killed by the sword at the command of God, and then this was followed by a plague. Number two, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. This is a reference to Numbers 25, when the people of God began to worship at Baal of Peor. Numbers 25, 1-3 says this, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. 
Note the connection between idolatry, eating, sexual immorality. What were the Corinthians doing? Idolatry, eating, sexual immorality. Um, Baal of pure, Baal means master or lord, pure means gap or opening. So you can figure that one out. The, the, the worship rites of worshiping this God involve sexual immorality. The result, God sent a plague and killed 23,000 in a single day. Number three, we must not put God to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is a reference to Numbers 21, 5 and 6. It says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Talking about the manna from heaven. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now why would Paul include this example? Well, look what they're doing. They're questioning the apostle Paul. They're, they're questioning why they have to have to stop these cultic meals in, in Corinth. And, and what does Paul know after all? I mean, who is he to tell us what to do? They're speaking against God and Paul. In the Old Covenant, they're speaking against God and Moses. So remember, he's intentionally picking examples from the Old Testament that mirror their sin. Should be getting their attention by now. Number four, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This could be Numbers 14 or number 16. They were grumbling in both of those chapters. But it's most likely 14 because the passage ends with that uh, revelation from God about them, none of them entering the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. So Numbers 14.2 says, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Grumbling meaning an expression of, of dissatisfaction. Smoldering discontentment. Complaining. That's what grumbling means. And then Numbers 14, 27 through 30 says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Well, the text said they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but God says, you're grumbling against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Smoldering discontentment against God. Paul's saying, look, do you realize that when you're complaining against me, you're really complaining against God? Yeah. He's saying, look, I, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. You, you're, if you're complaining against me, I'll step out of the way. You're, you're really complaining against God. I'm not bringing you anything that God has not directly commissioned me and, and inspired me by the Holy Spirit to give you. I'm an apostle of God. So they would have had this Old Testament background. I, I didn't want us to just kind of breeze through here and not make all these connections. They would have gotten these connections. They, they would have understood each of these accounts and they would have put two and two together and said, oh, we're doing the same thing that the old covenant people of God did in the wilderness. Verse 11 and 12. Well, if it can happen under the old covenant, and this is where Paul's going, 
it can happen under the new covenant. He says these things have been recorded for us. God has seen fit to include these incidents in his word for our instruction. And he says, of whom the end of the ages have come. So he's saying, look, we're on this end of the cross. They, they were experiencing it real time. They were going through it. We're, we're over here. We can look back and benefit from their example. We don't have to go through that in order to gain the wisdom and the warning that those things serve to, to accomplish for us. And then he says in verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul said, look, I've shown you the examples. If it can happen in the old covenant, it can happen in the new covenant. And he's saying, I don't want you to think that, that, that coming to the worship service and, and undergoing baptism and, and coming to the Lord's table, and I, I don't want you to think that that's some sort of uh, magical shield of invincibility that's going to protect you from falling if you are continuing to willfully walk in ongoing unrepentant sin. Those things are, are, are canceled out. You're, what you're doing is you're, you're revealing that you are not in Christ. It's, it's unreasonable for, for you raw believers to think that you can continue to walk in this as, as the way of life and think that you're going to be okay. It just doesn't work. There's a man who, who visited California and one day he was walking up to the beach and there was a wall there and so he came and he just kind of sat on the, rested his arms on the, on the wall and he looked out at the ocean and watched surfers as they surfed in the, in the waves. And not too long after that, another man about four or five feet did the same thing, leaned up against the wall and, and the new guy said, do you surf? And the man said, no, no I don't. Oh, do you? He said, yeah, I'm a surfer. He said, oh, okay. Have you surfed here? No. Hmm, okay. Well, what kind of board do you have? I don't have a board. Oh, okay, so you're, you're like, body surf, is that what you mean? No, I don't go near the water. I hate the water. He said, have you, have you ever surfed at all? I said, no. I said, okay, well, you just pull my leg, right? You really can't call yourself a surfer. And he said, yes, I can. I'm a surfer in here. I'm a surfer in my heart. Likewise, those who profess belief in Jesus Christ, even if they, they believe in their heart that they are safe and secure in Christ, and at the same time are willfully, intentionally walking in and loving sin, doesn't work. But by the way they are living their life, this is what Paul's saying, by the way you are living your life, that contradicts anything that you're professing. Anything that you say you believe. Take heed, lest you fall. He's saying if you continue to live apart from Christ, knowingly in willful rebellion with ongoing unrepentant sin, then you're not in Christ. You don't have saving faith. You never were in Christ. 
Verse 13, God is faithful. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The first part means you're not encountering some sort of unique temptation. Remember the context. He's talking to them. It's to them. It's for us, but it's to them. You're not encountering some sort of uh, unique temptation, this temptation to compromise with the world, to to participate in idolatry, sexual immorality. So th- this is nothing new. Every generation is going to be dealing with this temptation. It's very common to humanity. No surprises here, Corinth. You're not being taken hold of by some sort of unusual or strange sin or temptation. The good news is this. God is faithful as you face this temptation And if you turn to God in repentance and belief, he is faithful. He will not let you be overcome by this. He will not let you fall if you turn back to him. He will allow a way of escape. Faith in Christ. Repentance and belief. Asking for forgiveness. Fighting against this spiritual pull. Like a a gravitational force pulling on the moon. This, This spiritual pull that's pulling you into sin. He said, you fight it. Don't go along with it. Don't don't justify it. Don't make excuses for it. Turn to Christ. He's faithful. God will take care of you. This is not something, even this, is not something too big for God to handle. If we had to to summarize this in a paragraph, we'd say this, this portion of Take Heed 10, 1 through 13 says this. Paul compares Israel in the wilderness to the believers in Corinth and points out that simply belonging to the visible covenant community of God does not guarantee salvation. He he sets forth four specific examples from the Old Testament. The sin of the Israelites mirrored the sin that was present in the Corinthian church, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God and grumbling. And his point is that if anyone in the church continues an ongoing unrepentant sin, they should not expect any outcome different than those who died in the wilderness. Paul concludes by giving them the good news of God's faithfulness towards those who trust him with saving faith. For those in Christ, God will enable them to persevere through even the toughest temptation. This whole section is leading up to, and is the, the, the pinnacle, the high point of this passage is verse 12. Therefore, now, we're going to see a therefore two verses down in verse 14. That therefore is summarizing and is the high point of everything he said from 8.1 all the way through the end of chapter 10. Remember, that's one whole section. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. This therefore is summarizing what we just looked at. So we need to understand exactly what he's saying. He's saying, therefore, in light of everything I've just told you, let anyone or the one who thinks he stands... Meaning, to stand ready, or to stand firm, to, to stand established. He's saying, if, I'm talking about the person who thinks they're good to go, who thinks they've got all their equipment, they're, they're ready, they're prepared. The one who thinks they're firmly established in Christ. The one who thinks, I, I'm among the elect and my salvation is secure. And yet, who is walking in ongoing unrepentant sin. Let that one... Take heed, meaning pay attention to, consider, contemplate, 
carefully weigh. Lest, and that's used to connect an action with a negative consequence that will happen unless the action is acted upon. So take heed lest you fall. And by fall he means fail to obtain salvation. Fail to inherit the kingdom of God. Even if they're a member of a faithful church, even if they profess Jesus Christ as their Savior, even if they've been baptized and are coming to the Lord's table on a regular basis, he says, take heed. Now, there, there may be some here today, for whatever reason, have not heard this biblical truth before. Maybe they're walking in ongoing unrepentant sin, and they do not realize that that is incompatible with saving faith. Because the church is good at proclaiming grace and forgiveness in Christ, and she should. The church is good at proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ's atoning blood, and she should. The church, at least Reformed churches, are good at proclaiming the perseverance of the saints, and she should. But sometimes the church neglects proclaiming the warning to take heed. So let's push this to its logical conclusion. We've kind of heard it from different angles, but here it is one more time. Listen to this. If someone, even if someone is professing faith in Christ, and they're saying, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, I'm a six-day, 24-hour-day creationist. I believe in, in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. I believe in faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. I believe that I'm not saved by my own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, credited to me, imputed to me, and it's on that basis alone that I'm justified before God. What this is saying is that person, if they are walking in ongoing, unrepentant sin will fall. Do we get that? There are going to be some on the day when they appear before Christ the judge, they will have lived deceiving themselves, thinking that they were standing firm and secure because they were communing members of a church, they've been baptized, they came to the Lord's table, and yet they will fall. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they will be filled with dread and terror. But at the same time, they will be forced to acknowledge that Jesus' judgment is righteous and true because they will remember that they had walked in ongoing, unrepentant sin. They will remember that they lived a life that had been compartmentalized and that they had loved their sin and they had known it was evil and they continued to do it despite the warnings and made no effort to fight it. They did not take heed. The only ones that need to take heed are those that are walking in ongoing unrepentance. And the key words are ongoing and unrepentant. So continual, habitual, willful sin with no repentance no desire to stop, no desire to change, no spiritual fight going on, just a complete, purposeful giving over to sin, an intentional, deliberate, sinful way of life that someone purposefully walks, deciding in your heart and settling in your heart, I know this is evil, I'm going to live this way. That. The, anyone like that, no matter what they say, no matter what they profess, no matter what they do on Sunday morning, they need to take heed 
They need to take heed. This is not talking about losing your salvation. Scripture teaches it's impossible to lose your salvation. This is teaching that no matter what you say or do, if you live like this, this is revealing that you're not in Christ and you never were in Christ. Is there anyone here this morning that has professed Christ but is walking in ongoing unrepentance? If so, take heed. Take heed. Hear this warning from Scripture. Deal with it now. If you love your sin and are willingly walking in it, then take heed. Carefully think and consider that belonging to the visible covenant community of God will not prevent anyone from failing to obtain salvation if they persist in that way. Now let me turn the corner and talk to those who might be questioning where they stand in light of this warning. Because there may also be someone here this morning saying, I'm freaking out right now because I'm hearing what you're saying and I have sin in my life. A lot. And if I were to be honest, I would have to say maybe it is even habitual or like you say, ongoing. And, and I'm wondering where I stand. I would ask, do you desire to continue sinning? Or do you desire, desire to get rid of it? And if the answer is, get rid of it, of course. I hate my sin. I don't want anything to do with it. I feel like I'm disappointing my Lord. I, I, I find myself crying out to God and in tears asking me to deliver, or asking Him to deliver me from, from my sin. If that's your heart attitude towards sin, then you do not need to take heed. You need to take comfort. This, this warning is not saying if you have sin in your life or if sin is present in your life, even persistent sin in your life, it's not saying you're, you're going to fall. Uh, 1 John 1.8 says, If we have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1.10, two verses down, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. We all have sin in our life. The key words are ongoing, and unrepentant. If you have sin, even persistent sin, in your life, but you're doing everything you can to fight it, if you're in Christ by faith, if you hate your sin, you're asking God to forgive you, you don't need to take heed, you need to take comfort. So if you hate your sin and are actively fighting against it, then take comfort, no matter how persistent or, or prevalent or ongoing it is. Do you see the difference? We've got to see this line. Right in between 1.8 and 1.10, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Take comfort. God is faithful. Not only are you forgiven in Christ, but he promises to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But that doesn't happen overnight. Anyone ever tried to uh, pick up a tube of tooth-whitening toothpaste? Maybe the, the coffee has done a number on your teeth over the years, and it's time to, to get rid of the brown and get back to white on, on the front of your teeth. So you buy this toothpaste, you can't expect from one brushing to, to rinse out and look in the mirror and expect to see crystal clear, bright, uh, pearly white teeth. And usually on the box it even tells you uh, something like multiple brushings required, or usually something along the lines of, you know, after, you know, 
two to four weeks of use, you can expect to see a shade wider, whatever that means. When you come to Christ, and that, that's what was going on in, in Corinth. When, when people come to Christ and we're raw, we, we should expect to wake up the next morning and have our sin gone. We should expect to wake up the next morning and begin the lifelong fight against sin. Because it's not going to go over way, overnight. It is going to seem ongoing to us. That would be extraordinary. That would be an extraordinary work of God if all of a sudden, boom, something that had been a, a habitual, sinful part of your life was suddenly gone and you have no taste for it whatsoever. That would be great. But that's usually not the way it works. Sin likes to hang around. It's not always enjoyable. It's often difficult. Usually frustrating. And so I don't want us to fall into that, that trap of saying, well, after a few years, God hasn't changed me. Um, I guess this is part of who I am. I guess um, this, this sin is immutable and, and I shouldn't really start to, to fight too much against it anymore. I guess I'm just going to have this be a part of my identity in Christ. No, uh-uh. That's not it. Or I keep falling into the same sinful rut. I, I guess I should just throw in the towel and just kind of lean on uh, 1 John 1, 9 and, and just pull it out on a regular basis and just continue in this sin and then right afterwards ask for forgiveness because I, I'm just going to plan on living like this. No, that's not it either. You, you can fool anybody else and we, can, we, can, we present externally who we are, but nobody knows your heart except you and actually you don't even know your heart. God knows it even better than you do. There's no fooling God. If we come to him with a sincere heart asking for forgiveness, he will forgive us over and over again. The battle may be long, but it ends in a victory for those who persevere. So we see two groups from this passage. One group is loving their sin and willingly walk in it. To that group, Paul says, take heed. The other group hates their sin, actively fights against it. Paul tells them that God is faithful and they should take comfort and, and know that God will not allow them to, to fall. They will persevere. They will finish through the race victoriously in Christ. Both groups were professing faith in Christ. So which one are you in? Amen. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word and we consider some of these things that, that your word tells us are put forth as examples for us to pay attention to. We want to, to walk the line carefully, Father. If that is us, if we've been deceiving ourselves, if we've been nursing some kind of pet sin or, or justifying it in our own hearts, but, it, but we know that it's evil, Father, we, we repent. Father, if it's not, and I want to speak to those that, and pray for those that may be thinking that they're overwhelmed by their sin because it's so prevalent, and they just can't get away from it. Father, those 
that are in that situation and yet are turning to Christ for forgiveness and as best as humanly possible are trying to fight, Father, give them comfort. Assure them that they are secure in Christ. Assure them that there is no sin too big for God to forgive. And Father, lastly, if there's anyone here this morning who is, who is not in Christ, who, who has not been professing Christ, I ask that they would turn to you in repentance and belief today. That they would experience the forgiveness of their sins and the joy that comes from living at peace with God. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.